Syzygy episode 69, Solar Secrets and Nebulous Neutrinos. And welcome back for another edition of the Syzygy podcast. My name is Chris Stewart. I'm in York, not in York, but sitting on the other side of the Zoom call from me, Dr. Emily Brunsden. Emily, you're across the other side of the country, but still part of the show. Good to see you. Hello, hello. Oh, yep, my microphone was just about to roll off the pile of <laughs> I was like, oh no, oh no. But it's, no, it's okay. This is the danger of ad hoc podcast recording is I'm looking at Emily on the Zoom and she's got the, the microphone balanced as usual on a tall pile of academic texts. What are we uh, What are we reading today in the podcast, Emily? What's on the pile? Uh, so we've got um, Stellar Spectral Classification. Very nice. That, yeah. um, top 10 hit. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting till they make the film, frankly. Um, what else? What's on there? <laughs> Uh, so we've also got uh, communications and astroseismology, user manual for Fumius and Das. Nice, nice. Well, that's, you know, that'll keep us going through the rest of this uh, this pandemic lockdown. Very nice. And how you been? You keeping well? Yeah, yeah, going not too bad. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the sunshine. This British summer is getting a bit tedious. I think a lot of us are waiting for the sunshine. And in fact... That's a that's a relevant point. Relevant point. I'll try that word again. That's a relevant point for one of the the little pieces of sort of newsy podcast starter that I thought we'd mention today. There's a couple of things before we get into our subject of choice, and I should mention what that is. Today we're going to be talking about the sun and the big jigsaw puzzle and how it shines and how it shines. The big jigsaw. There's so many links. My God, I didn't even see that one coming. There's so many pieces of the jigsaw puzzle about how the sun works, what it does, where the energy comes from, all the nuclear stuff that goes on inside the sun. And we think, maybe, we really hope that the last piece of that jigsaw puzzle has been experimentally put in place. It's been confirmed. Observations of neutrinos coming from a very specific part of the solar fusion process, which is very exciting, particularly as it happened in a big liquid-filled balloon a mile underground in Italy. But we'll come to that in a minute. Before that, Emily, have you seen the comet? No. No, you haven't seen the comet. And there's a couple <laughs> of reasons you haven't seen the comet. And we're talking about comet Neowise. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's how it's spelt anyway. Comet Neowise, which is in the skies at the moment. And it's been in the news. I've seen it in the news. There's been pictures. There's been news articles and reports about it. Big comet in the sky. Very exciting. Go and see it. Unless you're in the UK, in which case it's been cloudy for a blummin' fortnight and you can't see anything anyway. <laughs> so that's one reason that maybe, Emily, you haven't seen the comet. I'm assuming you haven't seen Comet Neowise. Have you Have you spotted this one? No, I haven't spotted this one. And you're no. right. I mean, it has been very, very cloudy. Yeah. Um, Crazy But on cloudy. the bright side, it's not, it's, not, um, it's not all lost just yet. We've got a few, maybe a couple of weeks to try and get out there. And one would hope that in that time... Uh, to spot it, we can have some clear night skies. One really hopes. So I the mean... comet, um, it's it's just been past the sun, so uh, it's just been on its closest point to the sun, and it's now coming sort of back out, and it's coming back towards the Earth. So that's why we sort of say, well, from now on is is a good time to have a look at it. And if you can get a clear view of it, it's, you know, there's some really nice pictures out there. And yes, okay, you can't always believe everything you see on the interwebs. Maybe that camera has been pointing at that comet for an hour and a half to collect that beautiful picture. Maybe by the, by, with, the, with the naked eye, it's not quite as clear. But 
Well, reports are it's supposed to look pretty cool just before sunrise, just after sunset over on the horizon if you're looking from the UK. If you manage to get a clear bit of sky, it's worth going and having a look for. It's not very far from the Big Dipper, I think, or what do you call it in this country, the the, the saucepan or something, the Big Spoon? I don't know what you call it. Yeah, no, I think I think it is a Big Dipper. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's in the northern sky. It does. It is quite close to the horizon, so it's worth uh, making sure that you can't uh, that you can see it. That you can't, um, you know, you know, it's not all blocked by trees and houses and whatever. yeah. Get up somewhere so, high. Go climb a ladder or something. And it's going to be almost due north by about the fifteenth of July. So right. one way to spot it would be to look north-ish, look at the Big Dipper, and sort of follow where the Big Dipper's um, tail is pointing, but pointing through the the scoop, if that makes sense. Yeah, follow so that point down through, through the scoop down to the northern horizon, and it will be roughly around there. And with any luck, you'll see a bit of a comety smudge, and you can say, "Yes, I have seen comet Neowise," which is better than Emily or I have managed to do until this point. That's not the only thing in the news at the moment. Before we get onto the big sun-related stuff, Emily, Mars. We're going to Mars, and we're going to Mars very soon. And by we, I don't mean people. I'm not going. You're not going. But something's going. What's happening around Mars? Well. Three somethings are hopefully going to launch um, in the next few weeks to head to Mars. Yeah, what are they? Well, we've got three different nations who are launching Mars missions. So this is very exciting. So we've got uh, the US who's launching their long-awaited rover Perseverance. Ah, yes, yes. This was the one where they had the had the online competition to come up with a name, and staggeringly, it didn't come back as you know Marsy McMars face. It came back with Perseverance, which I don't know. We had a bit of a discussion at the time, and I, I kind of like it. I think you know Perseverance Seems is more relevant now, doesn't it? It does rather. Come on, we can do this. <laughs> we can make it. All right, so that's uh, that's America sending another rover, which is good. I'm assuming this is sort of yep. an upgraded, like, you know, the ones that are already on Mars wandering around doing their thing, but this is sort of upgraded with extra tech. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a drill, so it can um, drill down into the Martian surface. But one of the big uh, goals is to take some samples from Mars and put them in little kind of hidey-hole boxes that one day we hope with another mission we can go and collect and bring them back to Earth. That would be very cool because we've never done that before. We've never done the collect and return thing because, you know, from space that's one thing. But from Mars, that's a really, really different proposition. I don't know that we've ever come back from Mars yet, have we? No, we haven't. No, no. no. so that would be very cool. Okay, so that's America. Who else is going? So the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, are sending uh, a mission as well. So they're sending a orbiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the orbiter is called Hope. Perseverance and Hope, I like it. The UAE, do they have a big space program? It's not one you hear about a lot. I'm a bit surprised that, that the first time I hear about it, they're going to Mars. That's ambitious. It's very ambitious. Uh, so they didn't have one until about six or seven years ago. <laughs> um, but uh, I think with the, they put a lot of resources into um pulling together some of some former NASA scientists, but then also there's a lot of, you know, really clever young people um, in that part of the world who have put together a scientific community that's very, um, I think, creative and ambitious. So it's, it's an interesting mission. It's going to be quite fun. That's very cool. I, I like the sound of that. Okay, so that's two. We've got a rover. We've got an orbiter. What's number three? Uh, number three is China's, um, you know, mission to Mars. Mm -hmm. Now, China is... Probably the most ambitious out of all three. Now, you might remember... They're sending an entire town. <laughs> well, so China did have an have a attempt to send um, a mission to Mars in 2011 uh, that didn't 
work. Did so, it didn't work? In the, it, at what stage yeah. did it not work? Did it get off the ground? I don't did recall it get... the details. <laughs> I don't recall, but it was, yeah, kind of zero for zero. Well, zero for one, if you like, for China, for Mars at this point. Uh, so I think it's incredibly ambitious that they're sending um, an orbiter, a lander, and a rover in wow. 2020. Wow. There's... <laughs> They're not mucking around. We are definitely going to Mars come hell or high water. Well, and that's and these are all launching when? Within the next couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, so the Chinese one, well, we've got to go with the name. So the Chinese oh, yeah. one is... Uh... Yeah, because the name's important. We've got, we've, got, we've got Perseverance from America. We've got Hope from the UAE. And from China... Tianwen One, which means Quest for Heavenly Truth. Wow. Okay. It's Perseverance, Hope and Quest for Heavenly Truth. I think the Chinese are winning this one on the naming stakes. If you're going to go, then go big, I reckon. Well, good luck to all of them. Yeah. We'll be watching with great interest to see how those launches go. Yeah, so they've got to go in the next kind of few weeks because this is the window of opportunity whereby it's easier to get to Mars, basically. Right. Yeah, you get the timing wrong and you've got a hell of a long way to go and a lot more fuel you've got to take and all of that sort of thing. So now's a good time. Good time to go to Mars. And it's amazing go. that even even with a pandemic disrupting the final few months of preparation of all these missions, that they're all ready to go and they're, they're off. I guess there's nothing focuses the mind like an interplanetary window. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it, maybe it just sort of says, well, <laughs> the Earth's not looking super great right now. Let's, let's push on that, that we uh, mission We really to need this one. We really need this one. Come on, everyone. Let's go. Well, good luck to everyone involved. And we look forward to seeing how that one turns out. We'll report back in future future episodes and, uh, and let you know. It's going to take a while for them to get to Mars, though. How long does it take to get to Mars if you're in a spacecraft? Uh, a few months. So they'll be there February-ish next wow. year. That's a long way. There's no way, no way in hell you would get me on a spacecraft going there on the first manned mission. Not a chance. No, you should hear me moan on long-haul flights. I mean, <laughs> It's bad enough going to New Zealand on 24 hours, let alone Mars. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on to discussing the sun, Emily, because some really interesting news very recently. Um, out, of a, out of a very deep mine shaft in Italy, there's been reports of neutrinos. So... Talk to me about this story. We're talking about how the sun works, how the nuclear processes way down in the core of the sun do their thing. And it's very, very complicated. It's not just sort of taking a bit of hydrogen and turning it into a bit of helium. There's all sorts of stuff going on down in there. It's very, very complicated. But I'm going to ask a very, very simple question here, which is I kind of had the impression that we'd already sorted all of this out. I thought that the sun was really, really well understood and sorted out and experimentally confirmed. And so I'm a bit surprised when you send me this nature paper that says, well, we finally put the last piece of the puzzle in. What's going on, Emily? Cor correct me if I'm wrong. Well, you're sort of right, because that is true if you compare it to any other star that we know in the universe. Right. We know far, far more about the sun than how it works. I mean, orders of magnitude more than anything else that we've uh, managed to observe. That makes sense because the sun is orders of magnitude closer to us. It ought to be. It ought to be really well understood. I was just surprised that. Well, there's this process that we understand is going on down in the centre of the sun. We can talk about what that is. But we've only just found the experimental bit of the puzzle that, that fits with that. I'm, I find that absolutely staggering. So there's some really good stuff going on here. Let's wind it back. Emily, who are we talking about? What's happened? Where and why? 
Right, so this is, um, I guess, in some ways, a nice sort of pandemic piece of research um, that's happened. Now, the research itself um, is not related to the pandemic, but the announcement of this discovery was made in a virtual um, conference. It was called the Neutrino 2020 Conference. And uh, the announcement was made um, by the team which run um, an experiment in Italy called the Borexino. I might not be saying that with quite the correct Italian emphasis, but apologies um, to Italians everywhere, you, but it's close enough. Yeah, so there's a group, it's a team of people who have this big um, neutrino detection experiment. It's been running for quite some time in underground in Italy, and uh, what they were able to announce at this conference is that they have detected for the very first time neutrinos coming from a, a series of reactions we call CNO reactions in the C- sun fusion cno now i've heard of the the cno cycle cno cycle is that the is that the right terminology yeah that's right same 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 thing yeah yeah and if you've done any sort of basic high school level chemistry you might be able to guess what the c the n and the o stand for it's carbon nitrogen and oxygen right it's a cycle involving carbon that's nitrogen right. and oxygen so Give us a little bit of a rundown on what's happening here. What's the process? Yeah, so CNO is a really important fusion reaction in stars, but it's not a very important fusion reaction for our sun. Okay, so (laughs) for stars in general, but not our sun? That's right. So our sun is kind of um, at the very, very tail limit of even having this reaction. But if you go to much, much bigger stars, then this becomes the dominant fusion reaction. Uh, process that's producing all the heat and light that were from the stars so uh, any star that's bigger than kind of about 1.3 times the size of our sun pretty much all that energy is generated by this cno cycle wow so it's it's that important just not in our local area not in our local environment but the sun's kind of yeah it's only got less than one percent contribution to the energy output of our sun Right. Okay. So that explains why, I mean, I've certainly heard of this process before, the, the CNO cycle, but it also kind of explains why in this particular discovery, it's, I mean, it is, it's such a small part, such a tiny fraction of what the sun is doing that this starts to kind of make a bit of sense as to why it might have taken a while for this last piece of the puzzle, the experimental puzzle, to, to be put into place. The thing I find really interesting about this is that it it really um, points out just how complicated the fusion processes in deep down in the core of the sun really are. You sort of hear about the sun being, you know, when you when you first learn about it, you hear about it as, well, you take some, some hydrogen and you fuse it together and you make helium, and that's basically it. That's what's going on. It's much more complicated than that, right? It is. Um, so what you're talking about there is uh, the main source of energy in the sun, which uh, mostly comes from more than 90% of it comes from what we call a PP chain. A PP chain. Now the P, so we've we've had C, N and O, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. P, I'm going to guess here, stands for proton? That's right, yeah. Proton, excellent. So... Yeah, you might have you might have um, seen of uh, the overview, the net reaction, if you like, of the fusion in our sun, which is generated by this PP chain. The net reaction is you shove some um, four protons together and you get a helium nucleus from that. Right. But the detail is actually really really interesting. Um, it's actually more than a three well a three step process. So. What you have is you've got these protons, and these are um, our charge particles that. Uh, 
that sit around in the nucleus of an atom when they're bound up into an atom. Mm -hmm. But in the sun, the sun's a plasma, so everything's kind of free. It's just mingling so around, yeah. So you've got these protons mingling around. So step one is you'd have to take two of these protons and you have to bash them together. Now, that sounds a lot easier than it actually is because you've got two positive charges and turns out that they don't really like each other all that much. They don't. They don't like charges repel. And so two protons getting close to each other will push apart really, really, really hard, which means getting them to to bash together hard enough to do something interesting with, with fusion is really hard, which is kind of why you need the temperatures and pressures at the core of the sun. Yeah, so you need at least 4 million um, degrees to get to this kind of reaction to right. occur. Right, so that's not mucking around. But you said a minute ago you need four of these things. It's a three-step process, so that's just the first step. So, yeah, so this step, when you um, put these two protons together, then you get um, this nucleus, which is created, which has got a neutron and a proton. So this is um, this is a heavy hydrogen nucleus or a deuterium nucleus, right? So normal hydrogen just has a proton in the nucleus. This is heavy hydrogen with a proton and a neutron. And then you get some byproducts of that, which include um, a neutrino, for example. So then you got your your heavy hydrogen. Step two is you take that heavy hydrogen. I mean, because let's let's imagine where we're trying to get to, right? We, you've got to start off with just protons, really, in the sun, mm -hmm. and you've got to get them together to form um, helium. Now helium's got two protons in its nucleus and two neutrons. Right. So that's the the final where we're getting to, right? Now we've got to the point we've got one proton and one neutron. So if you smash that together with another proton, then you get as you might expect, two protons and one neutron. Right, in your and that's, that's tritium. That's heavy, heavy hydrogen. Nope, nope, nope. You, you've gone the wrong way. Oh, <laughs> so it. you've got helium now. You've got helium with oh, one yeah, yeah. neutron. Right, okay. Yeah, so it's light helium, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, heavy, not hydrogen. heavy hydrogen, light helium, okay. Yeah, and so then once you've got this um, helium, then you can stick two of those heliums together. It sounds like you should just add another proton, but it turns out that that's not energetically very easy to do. What is much easier to do is uh, stick two of these uh, light heliums together, and then you get um, two a, a normal helium nucleus with two protons, two neutrons, plus two leftover protons at the end. All right, so it's a very long way to go to finally get to your standard common or garden variety helium nucleus. But, you know, the... These reactions are going on constantly all the time. If, if you've got a bunch of protons and a bunch of protons and neutrons, a bunch of the deuterium flying around, and smaller but significant amounts of the, the light helium, eventually, right, you're going to get some helium formed. And that's, that's the, you were saying that's sort of the backbone of the nuclear process? That's that's your PP chain. Yeah, that's kind of your main mainstream PP chain. There are some very slight variants on that, which are just mm -hmm. detail, I think, really. But um, what's important is that whole chain process produces two neutrinos. Okay. And these are the things that we can observe because we're not sticking things in the core of the sun, right? No, we can't, we can't stick a little probe down in there and go, so what's going on? Let's measure it directly. All you can measure is what's coming out of it. And... So we do that through looking at the neutrinos. So maybe it's time to just take a take a step in that direction and talk a little bit about neutrinos. Okay. Now you said very the very first step on that was you take two protons and you bash them together really really hard at very high temperatures, and out of that you get deuterium. And deuterium is a proton and a neutron. So two protons, proton and a neutron. 
Where'd the neutron come from? Where'd the proton go? Where'd the neutrino come from? Talk us through this one. Right, okay. Yeah, so what happens is you can imagine the second proton kind of transforms and it actually transforms into uh, kind of three different things. So it transforms into the neutron, but you, can, you have to conserve charge, right? You can't just get rid of this positive charge that's an aspect of a proton. It has You can't destroy charge. That's a thing in the universe. Yeah. You have to hang on to the charge somewhere. So where does it go? So in this case, the charge goes into um, a positron, <laughs> which is a positive version of an electron. I like the way you say that, a positron. It almost sounds like it's you know some kind of bad guy in a, in a 1980s animated kids cartoon. But anyway, the positron. Yep. yep. Positively charged electron thingy. Yeah. So that, that goes winging its way back out into the plasma. Pretty much it very quickly annihilates with another electron. And that's actually how you get the heat, the thermal energy from the sun. Oh, okay. That's all coming from positrons and electrons annihilating each other, because that's what matter and antimatter yeah. do. They they sort of disappear in a puff of photons. So that's cool. Okay. So that's where that goes. But you've got you've got another thing. You've got a neutron, a positron, and and the leftover bit is this neutrino. And it really, I mean, these things are really like the leftover bits, <laughs> and which is possibly why it took us a very very long time to figure out what these things were. So if you look at kind of one. Uh, fusion reaction. One fusion reaction produces actually not a lot of energy at all. <laughs> it's very small. I mean, look, on the on the scale of the, the protons themselves, it's, you know, it's a modest amount of energy. But these things are very, very small. And so, you know, there's a bit there, but it's not very Yeah, much. so the whole reaction produces kind of less than, um, well, I've got 10 to the minus 13 joules, a few tens of the minus 13 joules. Which, by anyone's yeah, a joule language, is a really small. Yeah. It's a, it's a really small amount of energy. Okay. And then the neutrinos account for less than a less than a tenth of that. Right. But that's the interesting thing about the discovery of the neutrino, isn't it? That that when uh, back in the back in the day when all of these processes were first being investigated, there was this you know, so there was something missing. Something missing when you add up the energy of the things that went in and the things that went out of the nuclear of the nuclear process. There was just something missing there. It, it wasn't going to be charged because all the charge was accounted for. That was all. That was all figured out. So it needed to be neutral, but it had to be carrying away some of the energy. And it was hypothesized: go look for this really tiny thing. We'll call it a neutrino, tiny little neutral thing. And they found it. Yeah, and it's really. I mean, if you're looking for an example of something that does not want to be found, <laughs> I mean, we've got. <laughs> Putting this aside our dark matter, dark energy, this is yeah, well. this is you know, this is a really a particle that's in some ways a very ordinary. It's ordinarily part of our normal standard model of physics, but it really doesn't like to be found. It really <laughs> it's doesn't. So hard to detect. It really doesn't, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is it's got no electric charge, so it's not going to to interact through electric or magnetic fields. It's not interacting with with light in a big way that, that normal matter does, which is full of electrons and protons. So it's not doing that. It's incredibly low in mass, so low that it took decades for people to even figure out whether or not it had any mass at all, or was it just completely massless? It's much, much lighter than the electron. It's this tiny, weeny little thing. And it, it only interacts through what we call the weak nuclear force, which by its very name is really weak like it just happens so rarely 
And so, yeah, it, it took a really long time to even figure out if these things actually exist. So, yeah, so neutrinos, when, if you imagine that you're a neutrino and you look at an atom, mm -hmm. atoms are mostly empty space. Right? Yeah. You've got this nucleus, which has the protons and neutrons, you've got an electron, but there's a huge amount of empty space there, right? It's just vast amounts. Now, we don't sort of, you know, really notice this empty space because we have electromagnetic interactions between all sorts of stuff. So like the, um, it stopped to stop me from, you know, falling into this microphone, <laughs> then the electromagnetic <laughs> interactions between the electrons in my face sort of interact with the ones in the microphone. And yeah. so, you know, I don't fall through the microphone, right? Exactly. I mean, you hear that phrase, you know, atoms are empty space quite a lot. And that's, as you say, that's only true if you ignore the whole electromagnetism bit because for all intents and purposes the atom isn't empty because we see the effects of those electromagnetic fields we get the push and the pull from the electrons and the protons throughout the entire atom so it's not really empty in terms of interactions unless you're a neutrino yeah in which case you don't see the electron very much at all you don't see the electromagnetic fields you just see this com almost completely empty sphere so, yeah, so it just whizzes straight through atoms. Now, this is brilliant if you're trying to study the fusion reactions in the core of the sun, because it means that as soon as you produce a neutrino, that's it. It's, it's flying, it's gone. It doesn't care that you're in a, you know, the core of the sun, which is at several million uh, degrees. It doesn't care that there's you know, a whole lot of sun plasma to get through. It just whizzes straight out of the sun. Yeah, like the sun's big, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's fantastic. The flip side to that coin is when you're trying to detect it on Earth, it just doesn't even see it. You know, the neutrino wings its way through your detector, through you, through the entire planet, and continues on its way through the cosmos without even noticing. And that that makes it hard. It makes it very very hard. So. The way that we set up experiments in order to detect neutrinos are to look for some very rare interactions where if you're very, very lucky, um, then your neutrino will come along and instead of whizzing through the kind of the empty space of an atom, it might just react or hit the nucleus of your atom. Yeah. And then some things might happen which you can actually use to detect that it was there. Yeah, you've kind of got to, you've got to work with the stats, right? I mean, I just I, ha I actually had to just remind myself because there's a classic in physics there's the neutrinos interact so rarely that did you know that some ludicrous number of them are passing through your body every second and you didn't didn't even know that. And I just had to look it up. Do you know what the number is? The number of neutrinos passing through your body every second from the sun? Uh, yes, it is 60 billion through your thumbnail every second. Yeah, 60 billion through the through an area the size of your thumbnail every second. Like, that's a lot. Every second. And occasionally, you know, very occasionally throughout the year, throughout your lifetime, one will bounce off something in your body. So you just, you just don't notice. So how do you detect one of these things? You've got to make a detector which is really, really big and really, really sensitive and then be really, really patient, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So what you got to, what you want to happen is sort of one of these rogue neutrinos to interact with the material that you've got. Um, quite often people use uh, water or ice or heavy um, kind of elements. In this case, um, the Barexino experiment uses hydrocarbons. Um, 
I haven't gone into the detail, but I'm guessing that's just because they've got large chains of, with, you know, largish nuclei, carbon and things like that. Lots of opportunities to right. interact. Yeah. Um, and once you get an interaction, then you get this uh, kind of flash of light, which is produced. So you want to then take your big sample of hydrocarbons in this case and look at it and see if you get a flash of light. Now, the problem just is... Just to be clear, before you go into the problem, I just want to paint the picture of what exactly we're talking about here. We are talking about an enormous tank. How big is this? How big is the balloon? I'm, I'm trying to really look it up um, earlier. So in this case, we're talking about a giant nylon balloon. Giant nylon balloon. Which has got how, hydrocarbons in it. How giant? We should look that up. Uh, it's giant really big. is, the, giant. is the, the size descriptor that I've got here. <laughs> Without a measurement attached to that. Okay, so you've got this giant asterisk, just imagine something really, really big. Balloon, nylon balloon. Oh, I've balloon. got 278 tonnes. 278, okay, okay. so a 278-ton nylon balloon of hydrocarbons surrounded by detectors, right? But this thing, it's not like sitting in someone's backyard. It's not up on the surface. It's down underground. Right, I've got that right, haven't I? That's right, and that's and that's where I was going to go actually. Okay, <laughs> this sorry, is, I did The problem interrupt. is, if you were to take this giant nylon balloon of two hundred and seventy-eight tons of hydrocarbons and just put it in your backyard, which would be a thing that you could do <laughs> yes, if you, yeah, like, yeah. presuming you've got a nice large backyard. <laughs> Why not? The problem is that the atmosphere produces lots of particles that uh, interact in a very similar way. They're called muons that interact in a similar way to how the neutrinos interact. So you just can't tell the difference if you've got a muon from the atmosphere or if you've got the reaction that a neutrino is produced in your balloon. What you're saying is that because you're trying to measure such a rare event as a neutrino bashing into something inside your balloon, you need, like, the atmosphere is a very noisy place. The Earth is a very noisy place. There's stuff going on all the time. Um, where are the muons coming from? So, yeah, there's really high energy cosmic rays that come from space. So these are kind of photons and things that have been produced by supernova or intensely charged particles that are just whizzing through with huge amounts of energy. They crash into the atmosphere and new, uh, these muons are produced. Right. So the atmosphere is noisy. It's got stuff happening all over the place. And that's going to completely swamp any tiny signal that you might get from seeing the occasional actual neutrino so you can't put it in your backyard you've got to bury it underground to get far away from those atmospheric effects so this particular experiment in italy is about a mile down is that right yeah yeah so underneath and that protects you so the muons would get stopped by all the rocks and sort of dirt and stuff like that they get you know they interact and they're, they're gone whereas the neutrinos pass straight through right but wouldn't you, like, surely you'd still have contamination coming from from the ground. I mean, the ground's full of stuff, right? And some of that stuff's going to be radioactive. I mean, there's, there'd be a background. I guess it depends on the energies as well. I mean, they do talk about how um, these, it's very easy to mistake um, a particular reaction of bismuth, in this case, bismuth 210. I don't know if you, it's your favourite bismuth. but Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, a... it's one of the classics. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, there's some of this in the nylon that the balloon's made out of. And that can very slowly decay 
um, which produces a flash of light, effectively the similar reaction in the, the tank. And I love this this story because so they figured out that this was happening, but there wasn't really any way which you could prevent this decay from happening. Mm-hmm. So what they did was very very clever. Was they managed to stabilize the whole system and keep it at such a very very precise constant temperature that yes these um these kind of decays were going to happen from the nylon but they were only going to happen right at the edges so that the bismuth is kind of leaking a little bit into the balloon but it doesn't get far right and it can't decay very far so all you need to do it's not enough that you've got you've got a giant nylon balloon a mile underground filled with tons of hydrocarbons but let's keep it climate controlled to a really precise degree as well just so that we can keep an eye on the bismuth interactions it's, yeah this is a level of experimental detail that is off the charts it took i think about 4 years to get to that level of stability with the temperature control <laughs> they got a lot of lot more patience patience than I've got. So that's this is the experiment, right? We're underground. Yeah, so it's very clever because then you've got these bismuth things happening on the edges, but you can just ignore them, right? So you know if you get a detection right in the middle of your tank. Oh, now it's nothing to do with the bismuth. Gotcha. So it's I, I really like that solution. It's I clever. thought it was very, very nice. Really nice. Yeah. Really nice. So that's what happens. Occasionally you get a neutrino bashing into something inside your tank. It gives off a flash of light. You surround your balloon with uh, photon detectors that can see that flash and go, hey, we might have just seen a neutrino and it was over here. And ideally, it was this much energy and so on. Somehow from that, you've got to work your way backwards to, so what's happening in the core of the sun? And that's the next part of this story, really, isn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, it's hard enough just getting to this point. It's hard enough even just detecting a neutrino at all, let alone figuring out, yep, so that tells us about the core of the sun. Yes. So what you ought to do is then um, look at the other reaction, the CNO cycle, which also produces neutrinos in the sun. Now... The CNO cycle is a little bit more complicated than the PP chain, <laughs> which I'm sure you're pleased to hear. But I've kind of I've um I've done I've done an abbreviated version, if you like, and I'll, I can talk you through that. Okay. So what we the CNO cycle, if you're a chemist, is um is kind of like a catalytic reaction where the carbon, the nitrogen, and the oxygen aren't actually important at all. I mean, they are, but well, they're in the title. They're, not they're in the name. Of... They must be important somehow. <laughs> Yeah, but they're not the they're not the things that are fusing. So remember, fusion okay. is going from hydrogen to helium. But with a CNO cycle, all you're doing is using carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen to help you go from hydrogen to helium. Ah, oh, okay. So it's not about making carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. Those have already been been made through some other reaction. They're hanging around, but they're helping you to do this thing. Yeah, that's right. So what you have is you have carbon twelve. So that means you've got twelve items in your nucleus of carbon uh, and you stick that a stick a proton with that and then you get nitrogen 13 okay right step one step two your nitrogen 13 decays it becomes uh carbon 13 then your carbon 13 picks up another hydrogen so it becomes nitrogen 14 right so we're bouncing around between carbon and nitrogen here good yep so now you've got nitrogen 14 you add a um, another um, proton to that one and it become oxygen 15 now, then your oxygen 15 decays back to nitrogen 15. 
Okay. Yeah. We're nearly there. We're nearly there. And then if you've once you've got nitrogen fifteen, this is this is the good bit because you can add a proton to nitrogen fifteen, and instead of going to I don't know something sixteen or whatever, it actually goes to carbon twelve, which is um, what we had at the start, plus helium four, and helium four oh. is the nucleus we're after. Gotcha. So you start with carbon twelve, right? Which is a which is a very Standard, stable form of carbon. It's, it's you know, common vanilla carbon. And you just start throwing protons at it and you build up these other isotopes of carbon and nitrogen and oxygen. But the punchline is that you get to a point where, well, we're just going to go back to carbon-12. But look, hey, left over, we've got helium nucleus because heli- the helium nucleus, two protons, two neutrons, is itself a very stable little lump. And so rather than going to, I don't know, oxygen 16 or whatever it might have been, it's like, nah, we'll be carbon 12 and this thing. And this thing is the helium. And you're back where you started. That's the cycle part. Yeah. Carbon, nitrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and back to carbon 12 again. Very clever. It is. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> nice. Yeah. So once you got to carbon 12, you can start the whole process all over again. So, yeah, this is a really nice reaction. It's actually more efficient in producing energy than the PP chain is as well. The problem is that you need to have much, much higher temperature for this reaction to kind of switch on. Right. And that's, is that why you said it's much more important for bigger, hotter stars than our sun, but less so for the sun? Because it's just not hot enough? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So the PP chain, you need 4 million um, degrees to get to fusion for that. For the CNO cycle, you need to get to 15 million. Ooh, that is hot. And the core of our sun, the very core, is only about 15.7 million Kelvin. Right. So it can do it, but not much. Yeah. But once you're a bigger, hotter star, then you're away. You're yeah. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. So you said that in our sun, it accounts for what? Did you say about a percent of the Yeah, of the total, even less than 1%. Less than 1% of all the, all the fusion energy that's, that's coming from the sun, which is not, you know, it's not a, it's not a big thing. But the CNO cycle's been known about for a very long time. It's been around for a really long time, yeah? Yeah, since about the 1930s, I think. Right. Okay, so this was an established... Like, we know that this is going on. But in terms of actually finding the experimental evidence for it, in terms of the neutrino output from the sun, that's only just happened. That's right. Can I suggest a question that you might want to ask now? Fire away. Knock yourself out. What should I be asking right <laughs> this now? Was, this was a question that I thought, and I thought, I don't know the answer to this. So I had to go and really think about it <laughs> okay. and, and work it out. All right. Hit me with it. So the PP chain produces neutrinos. Yeah. And this produces neutrinos. Yeah. How do you tell which neutrino is which? Funny you should mention that was actually down there on the list of my follow-up questions to all of this. I was going to let this all kind of settle out then and say, okay, so um, if it's really hard to detect a neutrino at all, how do you know? How do you know which ones came from making, sticking protons together to make to make helium and how do you know which ones came from the cno cycle like that's ridiculous it's not like they have labels on them they don't come tagged so i mean what do they have different energies where what how do you know well 
Okay, so I, I didn't actually know this. So I had I thought, well, I'd do what I'd normally do in this situation, which is go to the source. Right. Go to in most situations what we're talking about is a scientific journal paper and I'd go and dig it out and, you know, try and, you know, blaze through all the big jargon and and drill down into it. See, that's what I love about you, Emily, is that you don't, this is, folks listening at home, this is not just Emily going and Googling something. I mean, it's not that simple. You've got to go and actually go back to the scientific literature. And she she does that for you. Like, that's amazing. Well done, Emily. So, <laughs> well, so when you'd be you went more back impressed to, now. <laughs> when you went back to the scientific literature on this one, what did you find? Well, I went and looked at the original talk, actually, that was yep. presented at this conference. And, you know, everything's online, which is nice. So I could go and look. And I just looked at I looked at the slides. Because, yep. you know, I'm probably able to pick it up from the slides. Sure. Now, I, I'm, I'm not at all going to say anything about the science um, in terms of its validity. Because I, I do I do think it's I've gone to a really a huge amount of effort to to make this as science, you know, properly um, established. And I've gone to a lot of statistical detail. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. But, but you might want to put on some sunglasses before you look at these slides. <laughs> okay. A bit bright, are they? A bit loud? Yeah. I mean, there is, a, there is a kind of a known thing that scientists are not always the best at producing PowerPoints. <laughs> is there a bit of Comic Sans involved? Have we got, uh, we got some bad point well, choices? Not quite, but oh. there were about, you know, 17 different plots and about 100 million different colours highlighted. <laughs> Ouch. Okay, so um, it was it was it was a rainbow. <laughs> graphic design considerations aside, um, what did we find out? So what I found out is that it's actually not that you look at an individual neutrino, which okay. kind of makes sense. You know, yeah, I guess every detection yeah. has uncertainty associated with it, and so on and so forth. But what you look at is you look at the bulk properties of all the neutrinos that you've detected. Okay. So, and what what's that? You, is you look at the energies of the neutrinos that you've found. And so it's called, it's like an energy spectrum. So instead of a spectrum in different colors of light, you have a spectrum of different energies of neutrinos. And from this energy spectrum, what you find is the energy spectrum from the CNO cycle, it's pretty similar to that of the PP chain, except it's just a little bit different in shape. And particularly, it goes a little bit higher, slightly higher energies. So this is where the theoretical physicists are really earning their keep, right? Because they're able to look at it and say, okay, all right, all right. We can figure out from how these things are happening and the conditions that we believe or have measured to be down in the, in the core of the sun, we can figure out what the energy profile, what the distribution of energies of these neutrinos should be. It should look like this. And with any luck that'll be sufficiently different for the PP chain and for the CNO cycle that we'd be able to tell them apart if we measured enough neutrinos. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. Right. And what they've even got there is also they've got the spectrum of the um, bismuth decay that's going on and also, you know, considering that. And even with all these put together, then they've got a very statistically significant detection of these uh, slightly different energy spectrum neutrinos. Right. So it's Which not just cool. looking at an, any given neutrino and saying, that one, that one there, that one came from the CNO, whereas this one, that one came from the, the, the PP chain. No, it's overall, can we see enough of these neutrinos? But, but how do you, oh, now my head's hurting. How do you separate them out? I guess what you'd have to do is you'd have to say, all right, if we assume that you've got 
roughly this many neutrinos coming from this process and this many neutrinos coming from this process and the two processes have these different kinds of energy distributions, then the overall distribution would have to look like this. And I guess maybe it might have, you know, a couple of bumps to it or be spread out in a particular way. But you'd be able to tell. Yeah. You'd be able to tell if the CNO cycle was missing from that. And it's not. It's there. Yeah. This is pretty um, pretty common, actually, in science, where it's very difficult sometimes to make an, a measurement of something completely independent of all the other effects that are going on. And this is true in pretty much all the sciences, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's always some background. There's always some other effects that you wish weren't there. So it's very, very common to have, let's say you've made a graph of your um, all the different energies of neutrinos, in this case, that you've, that you've uh, measured. But you know that there are con contributions from these ones, there are contributions from these ones, there's contributions from background, there's contributions from bismuth, you know. And, and so it's actually a very normal problem to have to then separate those out and say, okay, well, the stuff at this high end, that's mostly dominated by this different process. The stuff at the low end is dominated by this process. And so it's almost like sticking together lots of different graphs to make the graph that you've observed. Yeah. Yeah, and the point is that you can tell the difference between is the thing that I'm interested in there or not. I mean, one of the real classics in the last decade or so was was the discovery of the Higgs boson, where you've got particles being bashed together in the Large Hadron Collider over in CERN, and you've got ludicrous numbers of these things. I mean, the the, the stats on the Large Hadron Collider is just off the charts. You've got countless number of these numbers of these things, and the detections where there's an actual Higgs boson involved is, is tiny. There's, there's hardly any of them. But if you build up enough of them over time, then you've got this big background of all sorts of particles being created, doing crazy things. And then this tiny little bump, which is there because the Higgs showed up. And out of this, this enormous number of events, just this tiny little bit, which is that one, that bit there. If that, if the Higgs wasn't around, that bit wouldn't be there. And it's 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 statistically just extraordinary. This is another version of that, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so pulling ourselves back around then to the to the heart of this story. Let's let's recap. We've got a process going on at a at less than the one percent level in our in our local star, but is really important for big hot stars across across the universe. It's the CNO cycle. We know that it's got to be there, but we finally found the signature for it in the neutrinos that are coming from our sun. And so that's the exciting part about this. That's the, the exciting experimental part about this. We did that by burying, burying an enormous balloon of hydrocarbons a mile underground in Italy and sifting through all of this, all of the, the stuff that we saw coming from the reactions in that balloon for, for, the, for the neutrinos. And we were able to see the signature of the CNO cycle in those neutrinos. So that's all great. But Emily, so, so where does that leave us? What do we, what do we take home <laughs> from all of this? What have we got at the end of all of this effort? All right. Well, the first thing is it's obvious that this is really useful for the study of hot stars, right? So you can extrapolate from the even just a few percent of our sun and then say, well, hey, this thing does actually exist. I mean, this is the first time we've directly observed the CNO cycle experimentally. So that's cool. Yeah. I mean, you can't um, directly observe it from any of the really hot stars that you assume it's going on like the clappers across the, the other side of the galaxy because we're not near those stars. I'm assuming you can't observe it directly. 
No, but it'll be it's interesting that we could now use um this you know kind of techniques with them you know enhancements in technology new detectors and so on potentially we might be able to pick up neutrinos from these other stars who knows um on a different note even for our sun we can actually start to think about what particularly is the uh, metallicity of the core of the sun the metallicity yes what, what does that mean? now remember that um, that for astronomers metallicity or the metals the metallicity is the amount of metal and for an astronomer, a metal is anything. Metal with a big asterisk. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. Metal well, for an astronomer is everything that isn't, that isn't hydrogen or helium, right? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So carbon, nitrogen, oxygen are metals for yeah. astronomers. Yeah, it's all, um, it's all metals. And so right. the overall you know, amount of metals that you have is important because you know, it tells you things about the evolution of uh, the entire galaxy. You know, how many different generations of stars have gone before our sun. Um, we'd, so we'd like to know what the metallicity of the sun is in the core. We suspect that it might be similar to what it is on the surface. We can measure it on the surface in um, excruciating detail. It's beautiful detail. But we can't measure it directly from the core apart from through these kind of reactions. So it's very nice. Although it's interesting that these measurements suggest that the metallicity does is pretty similar between the core and the surface. There's also some competing ideas that come out recently or some competing measurements that uh, say it might even be a bit higher in the core than it is in the surface. So there's some you know work to be done there. But the, yeah, so these these measurements are allowing us to to understand more about because they directly involve some of the metals, some of the big metals, the carbon, the nitrogen and the oxygen, it's a way of actually probing. So how much of this stuff is actually there to more detail than we've been able to do before? Yeah. And also these kind of things are important even for, um, you know, very civil purposes. Everyone knows that we're trying to recreate fusion here on Earth, trying to create the core of the sun. Now we're trying to do that through the PP chain or a similar kind of set of reactions to the PP chain. Um, but it's not, and that's difficult enough. Let's not downplay those enormous efforts. Um, we'll get there, I think. It's getting there. But it's a hard but problem. It's, it's very, very hard. But wouldn't it be better one day to be able to do CNO fusion, if that's even more efficient? You know, once we've got our, you know, deuterium fusion all set up and working, then we're happy and we're uh, producing huge amounts of energy. We may want to look to CNO as the next level of fusion being more efficient it's an intriguing idea isn't it because i mean as you said the the cno the the, the carbon the nitrogen and the oxygen they're basically catalysts in this they're just they're just along for the ride and it's the fusion of the hydrogen into the helium that is ultimately the payoff there yeah you just got to do kind of 10 million degrees hotter but you know <laughs> piece of cake <laughs> how, how can it be come on fusion theorists what are you waiting for get at it uh, but uh, yeah so i think it's my final point of the so what if you like is um it's actually a quote that was in the original nature report on this uh announcement um is that it's the quote is it's intellectually beautiful to actually confirm predictions of stellar structure theory i i mean i think that's a fair statement intellectually beautiful another way of saying that is I can't believe it's taken so long to, to actually be able to confirm this. But I guess stepping back from that a little bit is science or theory without experimental confirmation 
is is incomplete. We're we're not there yet. The the whole beauty and utility of science is about confirming the ideas that you had in the first place. And so this is a really, really nice moment of being able to say, here's a here's an idea that's been around, you said earlier, for, since the since the nineteen thirties, and we were pretty sure it was there, but it's a really, really hard thing to probe. Yeah. It's neutrinos for goodness sake. This is hard. And what I think, so this is a quote from Mark Pissano, who is actually a friend of mine, which is why it sort of jumped out at me as well. Um, so I think what he's also trying to say there is that, you know, so often in science, you produce a theory, and even if it takes you 100 years to go out and get the observations, it's pretty rare that those observations just say, yep, theory's good, carry on. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so sometimes it's nice to just say, yep, that works. We've got it right. Cool. We can carry on with some of the other questions that we have. Well, that does indeed bring us to the end of another episode of the Syzygy podcast. Emily, that's a, that was a nice little little moment to end on there, that, that sometimes, sometimes the universe throws us a bone and says, you know what, you've been working hard, here's your reward, that idea you had, yep, it's good. Carry on, keep doing the thing that you're doing. It's a nice moment. And yeah, and when I think about some lots of my research, you carrying, I'm carrying around, you know, half a dozen stars that every time I do some new observations on them, they appear to be doing something weird and wonderful, but then it's something differently weird and wonderful to what they were doing ten minutes ago. And you think, really? Can you just <laughs> look? Can you just calm down and just behave for ten minutes? I know it's interesting what you're doing, but sometimes it's not interesting can be useful too. Could you just just let me nail down one thing? And I guess that's that's what the universe has done for us on this. One's like, okay, all right, all right, all right. CNO cycle, you can have that one, right? Draw a line under that one and let's move on. Speaking of drawing a line under it and moving on, we're going to find our way out of this episode. Uh, Emily, if people wanted to contact us and talk to us about their favourite neutrino observation or indeed any other thing in the universe of astronomy, how could people possibly get in touch with us? What would they do? So if you're a Twitter tweeter tweeter, um, I mean, I'm quite into the birds in my backyard and I, I tweet at them. But if you're tweeting on the internet as well, then uh, you Lockdown's can choose Lockdown's really your... getting to you, isn't it, Emma? <laughs> <laughs> you can compose your tweet to us at SyzygyPod, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y-P-O-D. That's right. Oof, nearly lost on halfway there. Other places on the interwebs as well. We are on the Instagrams and we are on the Facebook, uh, all at at Syzygy Pod. That's where you can find us. We also have a website, don't we? We do, syzygy.fm. And that's where you can see lovely show notes. You'll be able to go and look at some very, very nice PowerPoints from uh, the Barexino team. If you're into it, you know, if you need a bit of color injection in your life today, I would think. <laughs> It sounds like it. Just as, as Emily said, put your sunglasses on first. And at our website, syzygy.fm, there is a contact page. You can get in touch with us if uh, Twitter or Instagram aren't your thing. Um, send us through a note and you never know, we might feature your query or your comment on a future episode. If you want to support the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can just tell everyone you know. Think of that person in your life who would get a kick out of discussing astronomy.
astronomical things and tell them you should go and listen to the Syzygy podcast. And that helps us to, to grow and build up our audience. The other thing you can do is you can go to our Patreon page. Go and become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash, you guessed it, SyzygyPod. Um, and you can sign up to be a financial supporter of the show and all of the money that we get, the huge amounts of not terribly much money at all that we get through Patreon, help us to keep the electrons flowing through the website and help us to do every once in a while something like a live festival show when festivals once again become a thing in this strange new world. Otherwise, let's wrap it up there. Emily, I'll catch up with you in a week or so for another edition of the podcast. But until then, stay safe and I'll catch you later. See you later. Bye, everybody. Every once in a while, the universe just goes, yep, got that one right. Next. <laughs> Not as often as you hope. So it is, I guess, it must be a great sense of satisfaction. It's just like, ah, oh, yes. And I'm sure the people doing the Higgs boson, for example, also got that. They're just like, ah, oh, good. Nice. Yeah, although the Higgs boson is a, is a weird one because there was also a palpable sense of, oh, because we were really kind of hoping for something a bit more, you know? Like, this is the simplest version, and it doesn't solve a whole bunch of problems that are now still there. If it had been more complicated, we would have had something to chew on. But no, you're just going to give us that and then walk away whistling. That's the best you can do. <laughs> oh, well, it was almost like the universe was trolling us. Something.